Yeah, I, I think you'd agree with me that most people tend to think fairly highly of themselves. We, we tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt oftentimes. I, I know whenever I do a project at home, I always uh, figure I can do it in much shorter time than ever can. Carol figures that it's always, uh, if I say an hour, she always multiplies it by a factor of about three because it's always going to take me long. I always think that I will do it quicker and better, and uh, I never seem to be able to do it. And sometimes it's just annoying to overestimate yourself. Sometimes it's, it's actually uh, funny. I shared a few years back with you about this survey that was done. It was a massive survey uh, done by a college board in trying to assess how high schoolers perceive themselves. And uh, in this survey, they asked about their perceived leadership ability. And only 2% of these high school uh, students thought that they were below average um, in their leadership ability. When asked the question, uh, how well do they get along with others, um, 0% thought that they were below average. And, uh, and it, it gets better. Uh, 40% of all those surveyed regarding how well they get along with others, 40% were in the top 10%. It even gets a little better. 25% of that group felt they were in the top 1% of, of being able to get along with people well. We definitely tend to overestimate ourselves, our capacities. We think highly of ourselves. Now, sometimes it's, it's annoying, sometimes it's kind of funny. Uh, in the passage today, it's very frightening. It's very dangerous to not perceive oneself correctly. Now, you know, we're at the end of the sermon, so Jesus is giving these warnings. These are really applications that he's applying to us now. And, and last week, we saw that he warned us about the danger of false teachers, their presence and their power. And he said, listen, they're going to deceive you. They're going to attempt to deceive and mislead you. And the end is tragic, so beware, is what Jesus said. Well, today, it's even, it's even starker because he says, don't be self-deceived. There will be people that mislead themselves regarding their own spirituality. In other words, there's going to be people who think, yeah, I'm in the kingdom, but they're not. Uh, people that, you know, no, I, I can profess a faith in Christ, but they don't possess that faith. Uh, they're very sobering words. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, that preacher in, in England, London, specifically in the last, well, in the in last century, in the um, uh, middle of 1900s, he said these words about this specific passage. He says, these surely are in many ways the most solemn words ever uttered in this world, not only by any man, but even by the Son of God himself. So these three scriptures, out of all, are the most solemn. That was his take on it. Now what I want to do, before I read it, is I, I want you to be thinking of, of three steps we want to make. First, I want to establish in your mind that Jesus is showing you the reality that people will be deceived about their spirituality. So people will be deceived. I want you to recognize that. Secondly, Jesus is going to show us the causes of this spiritual deception. There are reasons that we slip into being deceived over ourselves. And then last, and, and what I think bears a great amount of weight, is the danger to us of failing to heed these words, the danger to spiritual deception. So turn with me, if you will, to 
Matthew chapter 7. I'll read 21, 22, and 23. This is the third warning. Um, We'll have one more warning next week on the foundations upon which you're building your lives. But, But 21, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, I I think the first, I think you can see it in not everyone who says to me. I think Jesus is, is, is warning us that there will be people who are deceived about their own spiritual condition. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. What's this mean? It means that people are confused about their spiritual about the genuine nature of their spirituality. Uh, listen, he's not talking to the drug cartel leaders. He's not talking to the prostitutes and the murderers. He's talking to the religious. He's talking to the, the Pharisees and those who are professing to follow God. He's saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who makes a profession of me will enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and get this, he says, on that day many will say to me. So it's not a precious few that are deceived. He says there are many. You know, the many that will enter the wide gate and the many that will travel down the broad road are the many that will be deceived. There are many. So when you look at yourself, do you think you're easily deceived? Do you feel that you're by nature kind of gullible? When you look at your spiritual lives, can you assess that it is true and it's genuine? And upon what do you base a confidence that you have? If you ask your spouse or a good friend of yours, hey, do you see genuine faith in me worked out in life? What would they say? Perhaps some of you are even wondering why I'm barking up this tree. Maybe we shouldn't even do this kind of navel-gazing. Maybe we shouldn't even examine ourselves like this. Although, as, as Luke shared at the beginning of the service, Paul is very, very clear. In 2 Corinthians 13, he says, examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Unless, of course, you fail the test, he says. It's a serious issue. There are people that feel that they're converted, but they're not. They will call themselves a Christian, but Jesus, on that day, renders it, mm-mm, you got it wrong. He's raising the possibility, I would say the reality, that there will be people deceived in the church over their spiritual position. Perhaps that applies to some of us. The second thing Jesus warns us about here is the causes of this deception. In other words, if, if we're going to raise this idea that you might be deceived, we ought to know, well, well, then how can I be deceived? I mean, what are the causes of my deception that we see in this passage? Well, well the first cause, I would say, uh, would be this, that, that we often think that if I think rightly on Jesus, I must be saved. In other words, if my confession, if my verbal affirmation of the faith is correct, then I'm in great shape. But notice in the text he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now that word Lord can mean sir. Uh, but generally speaking, 
in this context, I think it has implications of divinity because he calls Jesus Lord, Lord on the judgment day. So when everything's crystal clear, they're saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? So I think he's speaking about these people had a right understanding of Jesus. They had a good theology. They had a right orthodoxy. These people that were deceived. What I'm saying to you is that I think this is showing us that there can be people who have the right Christian vocabulary, they have the right theology, they have an orthodox doctrine, they know the creeds, they can repeat the creeds, and yet they're strangers to God. Now, this shouldn't take you by surprise. Why? Well, because the demons recognized Jesus in the Gospels before the disciples did. Or in the book of James, he says, hey, the demons believe and they shudder. And they shudder, but they're not part of the kingdom of God. Now, please don't hear me for a minute saying that a profession of faith or a verbal affirmation of Jesus is unnecessary. I'm not saying that at all. It is necessary. I would say it's essential to have a correct understanding of Jesus Christ that you profess. And Paul says this, right, in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you confess Jesus with If you confess that Jesus is Lord with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So a verbal affirmation, a belief in the glory of Christ that you can verbally give is essential to salvation, but it cannot be alone. In other words, a profession of faith without the moral obedience that flows from him being the Lord is where we are deceived. So to know the right things about Jesus, but not to have a life that is in concert with that, is very deceptive. In fact, John Stotta, the great scholar of last century, said these words, he says, these people, their profession was verbal, not moral. It concerned their lips, but not their lives. Now, now I think you know this to be true. Probably in the last century and a half, maybe up to two centuries, uh, perhaps well-intentioned preachers, evangelists, try to give a very simplistic gospel. They ask you just to give a little prayer at the end, and then they assure you of your salvation, and they confirm upon you that you're saved. Little is said about the radical nature of repentance. Little is said about this demand to count the cost before you follow the Savior, even though Jesus did this throughout his ministry. And what we have here, and perhaps that's how some of you may have come to some profession of faith. And and the sad thing is, we just have wreckage of people who will rest their hope and salvation upon a profession made in previous years, and yet yet since that profession, there's been a, a superficial devotion, there has been a godless lifestyle, there has been little pursuit of Jesus Christ. And the reality of it is uh, that, at least according to Ron Sider, he's a theologian, he wrote a book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, and he did this, this surveying on those who profess Jesus and, and those who don't, and, and the lifestyle differences. And, and he built it around about seven cultural indicators. One was uh, divorce, adultery, use of pornography, materialism, spousal abuse, racism, and, and I forget the other one, but these seven indicators... And he found that by and large there was little difference between the one who professed Jesus as Lord and the ones who didn't profess at all. So what would that indicate? Or I could say to you that the Southern Baptist Convention um, 
claims to have 16 million members, less than half will be at church today. So, so there's a deception that is grounded in this idea that I got the theology down, not con- so concerned about the state of my marriage or the state of my personal life or what I do in my decisions. That's what Jesus is saying is deceptive. Not just that, fervency or devotion. That we're often, de- we're often deceived over the genuine nature of our spirituality, particularly if we are fervent and excited about a theological point or about something about God. Look at these people. They say, Lord, Lord, twice they do that. You can hear them, Lord, Lord. I mean, they're excited, they're passionate. They're not fearful, they're not bashful. I mean, look at the ministries they do. They're proclaiming the name of Christ. They're speaking, he's the Lord. There's a fervency and a passion that can be deceptive. You know, we feel that way, I think. When you hear someone pray, and they're really calling down heaven, and they're excited, and they're crying, you think, wow, they really must know something about God that I don't know. I just felt bad for the introvert and the shy, because they're just kind of stayed, they're just kind of calm, and they don't seem to be as excited about God. And the introvert and the shy often feel like, well, I don't have the the line to heaven that that guy has. Well, you've got to remember, a lot of fervency and passion well, it can be fueled by a lot of things. It can be fueled by the fear of man. It can, be, it can be fueled by wanting to be liked by people. It can be fueled just by personality. You know, we all know those people that are exuberant with everything they do, whether it's exercise or fashion or, or whatever they, they like, they are into it and they're into it fully. Well, then they come ahead and they find Christianity and the same fervency may display itself in there. I had a friend in seminary who was a fervent Roman Catholic. Now, before that, he was a fervent Protestant. And before that, he was a fervent and passionate Jehovah Witness. So, I mean, I don't know what he's fervent about right now, but it's been about 10, 15 years, so I imagine it's something else. So fervency and devotion is not a bad thing. It just isn't necessarily a genuine test of the nature of our spirituality. Another area of deception that I think people may look at and say, well, because this is here in my life, therefore I must be a Christian. And that is Christian activity, going to church, going to prayer meetings, you know, doing things. You know, in in our example here in the scripture, notice what they say to him. They say, "Uh, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? I mean, they're coming to him like these are our spiritual trophies. I mean, they're coming not only to be welcomed, I think they're coming almost expecting to be congratulated. I mean, they were. They were prophesying in the name of Jesus. To prophesy, by the way, it's an old English word to preach. It doesn't always mean foretelling what's going to happen in the future. To prophecy would be just to speak the message of God to people. I I prophesy to you every week. You hear prophecy every week. It's the words of God to the people of God. That's what prophecy is. And this can be done in Jesus' name. And, and you can do it well and be successful. And according to the scripture, still be deceived. Why? Well, you may preach in Jesus' name, but are you preaching for Jesus' sake? Are you preaching for Christ's glory? You know, Robert Murray McShane, if you remember, I did a, a mission biography or a, a biography on him a number of years ago. He was a very godly man, a Scottish man, died very young, used very much of God. He had a, a humility that they said when he'd enter the pulpit, people would begin to weep before he preached. I mean, he had a tremendous impact on the Scots when he was alive. But here's what he writes in his diary about his own soul 
when he preached. This is recorded in June 19. He says, wet morning, preached at Dunapace to a small audience on the parable of the tares. I thank God for that blessed parable. In both discourses, I can look back on my hateful thoughts of pride, self-admiration, and love of praise, stealing the heart out of service. You can preach in the name of Jesus and do it all for your glory. He writes just a few, a few weeks later on July 8. He said, since Tuesday, I have been laid up with illness, set once more by a season to feel my unprofitableness and cure my pride. Here's what he writes. Today, missed some fine opportunities of speaking a word of Christ. The Lord saw how I would have spoken as much for my own honor as his, and therefore shut my mouth. I see a man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake. He said, until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Christ. Lord, give me this. So you can do Christian works with absolute poor motivation. But these didn't just prophesy in Jesus' name. They also cast out demons in Jesus' name. It's a pretty spectacular work right there. That God would use a person to, to deliver someone of oppression from demonization. And yet we know the sons of Sceva and Acts did it. They were false believers. Or, or, or do mighty acts in Jesus' name. That word for acts is really miracles. They were doing miracles. And by the way, they didn't do one or two of them. They did many of them. And do you notice that Jesus doesn't contradict them? Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't do those things. They must have done them. But here's the kicker. Although all this activity was done, they had a great resume. I mean, look at all that we've done, Lord. They weren't true disciples. They were deceived. Why? They had no love for the Savior. They had no zeal for Christ. And think about in 1 Corinthians 13. We always read it at marriages, and it's a pretty passage to read at marriages, frankly. But it wasn't written for marriages. It was written by Paul to a church in Corinth that was highly gifted in spiritual things. And in chapter 12, he's dealing with their misuse of these gifts. And in chapter 14, he's dealing with their misuse. And he's trying to correct their use of these gifts. And he slides this little chapter 13 into this letter. And here's why. He says, if I have prophetic powers, if I understand all the mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, that is martyrdom, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, while it's a beautiful passage on love, it's set in the context of, you can do it all, folks, but if you don't do it out of your love and devotion for God, it's nothing on that day. It's an area of deception. We can be very effective in ministry, but we can be deceived where we are. Or here, here's another area, an experience. Many of us have had an experience with God. Perhaps we've been in a prayer meeting and, and our hair has kind of stood up on our arms. You know when that happens and we sense God's present? And he may in fact be. You sense the closeness of God. And, and, and upon that, you know, perhaps you've been delivered from a trial or you've, been, you've just had a near miss in, a, in an accident or you've been healed from something. And, you say, and it's, it's upon that event that you say, this is why I'm a Christian. God did this for me. Well, God may have very well done that for you. I don't deny it may be the grace of God. But remember, God is kind to the godly and the ungodly. 
God's grace is distributed to both. And I don't know that that is a genuine test of spirituality. So I used to go to a church, a charismatic church, and I was told that if I spoke in tongues, it was assured I had the Spirit of God dwelling within me, and I was saved. Well, that makes me pretty hungry to try to speak in a tongue. Until I found out later that, well, Native Americans speak in tongues, and Mormons can speak in tongues, and a number of other groups can speak in tongues as well. And all of a sudden I thought, ooh, glad I wasn't building a house on that. Because if they're building a house on that, then we're going to be confused. We're deceived. So all I'm trying to point out here is that Jesus has raised this possibility. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's going to be people who are deceived. And the reason that they are going to be deceived is they're thinking, well, my orthodoxy is pure. Or, or my, my passion. You know, I have a fervency for God. Or, or thirdly, that, uh, that I have all this activity. Or fourthly, that I've had this experience with God. That, that something, some phenomena happened that I can't explain, and that's why I'm a believer. And, and these things can be substitutes for true faith and obedience. You know, Jonathan Edwards was a great theologian in New England in the 18th century. He wrote a whole book about this. It's called Religious Affections. It's a thick book. It's a dense book, but it's a good book. Because he's trying to help his people see what is a counterfeit sign of spirituality and what is a genuine sign of spirituality. Because every generation of the church has to deal with this text. Okay, so... Why is this so important? Why have I labored? Why have we prayed so diligently over this passage? Well, because look at the danger. Look with me in verse 22. So I've raised up the possibility. I've shown you the causes. Now look at the danger. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Okay, on that day. What day? Well, it's the last day. It is the day. It's the day that all days are marching towards. It's the day that Christ sits down and gathers the nations before him. And there is this formal and verbal time of of reckoning with this Son of God, Savior of the world, Judge, Lord of the universe, you and I will stand before him. And it is a day where books are opened, where thoughts are revealed, facades are removed. It's a day that everybody will face. Death will not preclude this day. Everybody will face it. It'll be a final day. It'll be an interesting day. It'll be a shocking day for some. It'll be a startling day. It's the last day, and it won't be a day that we can make changes with. Charles Spurgeon says this, the great preacher in London in the 19th century, says that day for which all other days were made, that day by which all other days are measured and judged. Paul writes that, Paul writes about it in Philippians. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That'll be a day that we have before us, every one of you. We have that day. And that day is going to be a day when he renders verdicts to some. 
And the verdict for some, the shocking verdict, because people will be on that day thinking it's a good day, and he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Can you imagine harder words? You and I have a lump on our side. You go to the doctor, and what do you fear? You've got cancer. What, do we, what really causes us to tremble? You've got three months left to live. I don't know. Well, I do know. No man has ever experienced the grief that would be felt that day by those who hear from the judge of the universe, the king of all kings, the savior of the world, to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. I mean, I mean, the grief that will be felt, you think you felt grief? Can you imagine the permanence, the eternality of it? I never knew you. Well, why would he say this to people who have been so religious? He calls them, look, he says, you workers of lawlessness. Now, what does this mean? You know, again, we're not talking about the pimp and the prostitute and the drug dealer. We're talking about religious people. How can they be workers of lawlessness? Well, you remember at the beginning of the sermon in, in Matthew 5, 17, where he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven? That's what we're talking about. And then Jesus proceeds to begin to explain what this righteousness is. And, and he says, you've heard it said, quoting the Old Testament, but I say to you, And Jesus begins to lay out this law of love. And he begins to explain how he's calling those in the kingdom to live. It's according to the words of Christ. That these workers of lawlessness are religious people who have ignored the words of Christ. Who haven't walked in light of them. Who haven't concerned themselves with them. Who have been ambivalent to them. These words of Christ that we're called to live by for his glory and ultimately for our joy. You know, in John chapter 10, 27, to kind of add weight to what I'm saying, and I think clarity, and Jesus says in John 10, 27, he says this, my sheep hear my voice. Now, this is important. He says, I know them. These people knew Jesus. Jesus says, I didn't know you. But in John 10, Jesus says, I know them, and they follow me. So you know that you're known by having a life of following Christ. It's a profound warning. I mean, it it is the warning that we have had in this scripture. I don't know. when He zips us up up to that day, and he says, this is what's going to happen. It's a dire warning, but please see it as such grace to us that we're sitting here. We're not there. We're sitting here. There is time. I I mean, the the idea is judgment has not come. Otherwise, you wouldn't see me and hear me give you this call to consider these things with dire seriousness. I mean, what a gracious warning. I want you just to take a minute. What will you say to him that day? Unless you just disbelieve the day. But what will you say? What will you call him? And then what will you say to him when you see him? He has raised up for us. Jesus is so gracious to us. He's he's warned us in this text that there will be people who are deceived. He's given us areas to look at in our lives to discern if we've been deceived or not. 
And then, then he gives us this final warning of this danger regarding deception. So what do we do with this? Well, I, I want to just try to apply this sermon to you. And this is where I'm asking you now to engage with me regarding how do we unmask this deception? How can we actually see? Am I one of those? Am I, am I, am I, am I speaking about my conversion when I'm truly not converted? Am I, am I claiming the title follower of Christ, but I'm really not following Christ? <clears throat> so the first thing I'd ask you to consider this is how you're going to assess yourselves, is you would begin with examination of your own souls. Now, <clears throat> when I say examination, self-examination, the cultural pundits of the day say you don't want to examine your life. If you examine your life, it leads to navel-gazing. Be focused on other people and don't think about yourself too much. Well, I, I can see some truth in that. But excessive self-examination doesn't negate proper self-examination. There is a place to examine ourselves. And I think we've already read it in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. Paul calls us to do it. Folks, you do this every month. Do you realize when we have the communion table out here, <clears throat> what do we ask you to do? Examine yourselves. I, I, I mean, where baptism is the entrance into the faith, communion is that gift of God to keep reminding us, review your lives. Do, are you walking in a worthy manner? Before you come to the table, are you rightly following the Savior? It's this gracious reminder built into the life of the church to help you examine yourselves. And when you examine yourselves, <clears throat> I'm praying that you will not be indiscriminate in how you examine yourselves. I'm not looking to cause greater fear among those of you who are genuinely pursuing Christ. Because you're not doing it perfectly, because you lapse periodically, I'm not looking to sow seeds of fear in you at all. I'm just looking to sow into you the practice of examining your life before God. And, and I would encourage you to pray about this examination. Ask God for wisdom. Folks, I don't remember half my sins. Do you realize that? I, I couldn't, if you gave me the time, I don't remember half of them. I mean, I need God's help. Am I rightly looking at life? Am I self-justifying? Am I excusing myself? I get into a conflict and immediately my first response is what they did wrong and what I did right. And so I've got to stop and, and recognize that. God, help me. <clears throat> in fact, it's on 139. David prays, search me, try me, see if there is any wicked way in me. So, so we ask God. But I'd also encourage you in this self-examination, ask one another. I know this is mind-bending to some of you, that you would actually invite a person to examine your life with you. I mean, we are so private, and the walls are so high, and we would never put ourselves into the care of another person to say, well, there are a couple things that I want to point out. I mean, my goodness, it's like giving them the keys to the treasure box. But we need to do it. Why? Well, because of the deceitfulness of sin. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Obviously, the implication is you and I can be hardened. And what I mean by hardened is we become dull to it. We don't see it as it really is. And so we need one another to exhort us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So examine yourselves. Examine yourselves and examine your life of faith. 
That's really the next step, is to exercise faith. Test your faith. That's the second thing. So unmasking deception is by examining ourselves and particularly examining our faith. Notice what he says at the beginning. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, clearly, those who do enter the kingdom have done the will of the Father who is in heaven. So what is the will? That's the, that's the $10,000 question. If, if, if I can just say, Lord, Lord, not get in, but those who do the will of the Father get in, well, I want to know what the will of the Father is. So what is it? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us what it is, and it begins with faith. Now, let me explain. In John 6.40, Jesus writes this. He says, or sorry, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So faith in Christ, the one who looks on the Son, to look on the Son and believe in him. I'm not speaking about looking on the Son and believing he's a historical person or he's a teacher, healer, moralist. I'm not saying that. To look upon the Son is to believe that he is the unique Son sent by God to deliver us from sin. To look upon the Son is to believe that he is the Lord of the universe, the Lord of life. To look upon the Son is to believe that in his righteousness I am now safe, adopted as a child of God, not my own. To look upon the Son is to believe that by his, his life of perfection, his death, burial, and resurrection that I've been reconciled to the Father. To look upon the Son is to believe that he now has been granted all authority in heaven and on earth and that you are going to live for him with your entire lives. That's what it means to say, Lord, Lord. Anybody can say, Lord, Lord. But to say, Lord, Lord, and believe that he's the Lord means those things. See, this group said, Lord, Lord, but they didn't believe in him as the Lord. How do I know that? Well, because when they're standing before him, what do they turn to? They turn to their acts. They turn to their works. They turn to, look, Lord, look at what we did for you. They didn't stop and realize they had nothing to bring. To say, Lord, Lord, is recognizing that we have absolutely nothing to bring to the table. Do you remember how this whole Sermon on the Mount started? started in Matthew 5, 3. And Jesus, his first words in the sermon were, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only those who have poverty of spirit will enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to recognize that we are sinners that were broken that we need God to move in mercy through his son to deliver us because we are unable, given a thousand lifetimes, to deliver ourselves. Do you really believe this? That's what it means to say, Lord, Lord. You've got nothing but a cartload of sin that you're bringing to him, resting only in his absolute mercy to turn a loving eye to you and to forgive you. To believe, to say, Lord, Lord, is really to believe Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15, where he says, this is a trustworthy saying. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Can you say that? Can you really say that I am a sinner? And, and when you look at yourself, be aware of how desperately you need this king to come and deliver you. That's what faith is. 
The faith can take a lot of shapes and forms, but it begins at this stage of the game. And much preaching we've heard about faith doesn't start here. In fact, Charles Spurgeon bemoans revivalism. Here's what he says about it. A very great portion of modern revivalism has been more a curse than a blessing because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they've known their misery, restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never making him say, Father, I've sinned. How can he be healed who's not sick? How can he be satisfied with bread of life who's not hungry? The old-fashioned sense of sin is despised. Everything in this age is shallow. The consequence is that men leap into religion and then leap out again. Unhumbled, they come to the church. Unhumbled, they remain in it. And and unhumbled, they go from it. That was written 150 years ago. And it's as true today. So if we don't start there, if we examine our lives and we see ourselves as sinners, but the glorious news is though we are sinners, he is kind and gracious as a Savior to deliver us and, and to remove our sins, to forgive us, to adopt us into his family as we've learned the fatherhood of God through the sermon. And he gives us his spirit that we might walk in a way that demonstrates his life is now within us. He gives us new life. And and that's really the third part of unmasking devotion is this walking in the newness of life, the obedience. So in other words, doing the will of the Father is not simply believing on the Son to save sinners, but it's also to follow the words of the Son. You know, Jesus asks his disciples in in Luke chapter 6, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and and not do what I say? It's a good question. I mean, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you're not going to do what I say? In other words, it's the will of the Father that we live in obedience to the words of the Son. Now hang with me here, it gets a little bit cloudy. But what I'm speaking about, the words of the Son, just go with me in your mind through the sermon that we've studied. We've looked at the Beatitudes. You're pursuing humility. You're mourning over your sin. You're pursuing purity of heart. You're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You're becoming a peacemaker. Uh, You're not satisfied that you haven't murdered anybody. You're dealing with the anger in your heart. You're not satisfied that you haven't committed adultery with somebody. You're dealing with the lust in your heart. You're not satisfied that you don't hate your neighbor. You're actually trying to love your enemy. You're not satisfied with a marriage that's hanging together, even though it's by threads. You're pursuing, you're working at it so that it might be a display of the glory of God. You're you're growing in generosity. You're praying regularly. You're not trusting in riches to give you a sense of identity, but you're trusting in Christ alone. You're not going to worry about the mammon. You're not going to worry about this world. As I was praying this morning, I was looking at the birds, I was looking at the flower, reminded, if God's going to care for them, he's going to care for me. So when I begin to worry about preaching the sermon, I'm going to banish the worry, because look, he's displayed for me in front of my eyesight his ability to care and love me. So that's what it means. It means judging rightly. This is what we're called to both believe and obey. So it's not just saying, Lord, Lord, it's doing life as if he is the Lord. Now, I realize in your mind this raises up some perhaps contradiction. Well, hold it now. I thought it was by grace. I didn't think it was by works. And and let me just tease out that relationship just for just a minute, because it's a tender relationship. It's not a relationship in conflict. It's a tender relationship. We are saved. The basis of our salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. But the evidence of that salvation is meted out through your obedience to Christ. In other words, obedience doesn't preclude faith. Obedience 
flows from faith. In other words, John Calvin said, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. It's always married with works. It, it flows out of it. In fact, D.A. Carson, a, a modern-day New Testament scholar, said this to show you the relationship. It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience, but it's equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it's equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace, turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without rigorous church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. In the entire history of the church, has there ever been another generation with so many nominal Christians and so few real and obedient ones? And where nominal Christianity is compounded by spectacular profession, that is, fancy pastors, it is especially likely to manufacture its own false assurance. So let me give you a picture of what I mean. You have the widow in, in Luke chapter 21. You remember the widow? She's poor. She's destitute. Jesus is standing there with his disciples, and he watches all these people give all kinds of money into the temple treasury, and they're dumping it in. I mean, they're giving some big money, announcing with trumpets because gathering the people together to see what an act of grace this person's going to do by giving so much money. And then this little old lady comes up and drops in two liptons. They're just two little coins worth nothing, but that's all she had. And so Jesus says she's given more than all of them. What did he mean? Well, she was a perfect picture of faith and works. Her faith in God to provide for her fueled her ability to give the last two coins. But you wouldn't have known that if you didn't see the two coins dropping. So the works display faith, but faith caused the works. So they work in a gentle relationship with one another. That's the assurance we have. Our faith is revealed by our works. James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. He says, faith without works is dead. Now, of course, I've led you to unmask deception by examining yourself, exercising faith in Jesus, and walking in obedience to his words. I'm calling you to walk in obedience. But then we're pushed now to say, well, hold it now, Tom. I, I can't keep the words of Jesus perfectly. I mean, I, I can't live morally perfect. I'm going to fail. This is the glorious thing about Christianity. Jesus has provided for us in our sin, and that is through the gift of repentance. So when you fail, you examine your life, you see that you failed to walk in light with this teaching. You've blown your top. You've torn back the to some sort of sin. You've gone back to the internet. You've turned back to bitterness and anger. Whatever it is that you then turn to God in the name of Jesus and you repent. You say, God, forgive me. Again, I have chosen sin before you. That is evidence to you that you have been saved. Otherwise, you justify, you blame shift. When you can own your sin as being against God and your fellow man or woman, that's evidence that you've been saved. In fact, John says it this way, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John's talking to Christians. So we know we're going to sin, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and thankfully to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus has raised for us the reality 
the reality that people will be deceived. I have given you causes of that deception. And I've revealed to you the danger of not dealing with this text in your life. I've shown you four ways to unmask this deception by self-examination, exercising true faith in the Son of God to deliver us from our sin, leading to a life of obedience, and then where you fail in your obedience to repent. Now, I, I, would, I don't know where you all stand in this. So um, what we're going to do is I'm going to lead in prayer. Ray will close us in a few minutes. We're going to have a time of prayer. For those of you, though, who are concerned that you don't know, you feel that you might be deceived, you're uncertain, then I, I would ask you to come up. There'll be people up here that you can speak with. Or frankly, I feel confident enough in this church that you can probably speak to the person next to you about this. But if you're deceived, come forward. Don't remain deceived. For those of you who know that you are not right with, with Christ, then appeal to God for mercy in Christ. I mean, in Luke 15, the tax collectors in the back of the temple just saying, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, Father. And Jesus says, and he went home justified. There's no formula that you have to follow to be saved other than to appeal to God on the merits of Christ for his mercy in your life. Let me pray for us. And then when you do pray, if anyone follows me in prayer, which I invite you to, please pray briefly so that others can pray. Pray loudly so that we can hear you and pray with you for the same thing. Father, thank you for the graciousness of the warning. Give us the spirit that we may heed it rightly. Grant to us ears to hear rightly this word. Father, that the, that the afflicted in you might be comforted and the falsely comforted in you might be afflicted. I pray this in the name of Jesus.